0: I invite you to take your copies of the scriptures with me this morning and open to the book of Exodus chapter 20. In a moment, I will read uh, the first 17 verses there of Exodus chapter 20. We've been making our way through Exodus, and now we've come to what we often refer to as the Ten Commandments, and we have slowed down through these commandments, taking one each week at a time. We took some time off with Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday, but now we resume in Exodus 20 and this morning focusing on the seventh word, thou shalt not commit adultery. And isn't it amazing, as you come to God's word and as you read these ten words that are given to us. How we can say after each one, thank you, God. Thank you for this word. And to our world, that seems outrageous. Who would say after this word, particularly this morning, you shall not commit adultery, who would say, thank you, God, for that word? That's a word that I need to hear. That's a word that we need to hear. And so I pray that our hearts would be thankful. And before I read this morning, I want to address uh, just, we're going to talk this morning about marriage. And there are some people here who are not married for whatever reason, whether it's uh, you have never been married, whether it's you've lost a spouse through death. And so let me just speak to you uh, for a moment from my heart and say We love you. Wherever you are, we love you. And we don't hold marriage as a dividing line in the church. We come to you and we say we love you because you are our brother and you are our sister. Not because you have a spouse or don't have a spouse. So know this morning, we love you because you are our brother or our sister in Christ. And that there's also, even in this, a word for you. A word for purity. A word, as uh, Tim mentioned this morning, for holiness and righteousness. So hear those words and be encouraged by those words. And you have a responsibility in this body because I want you to hold us accountable, who are married, to say, this is what a true godly marriage looks like, this is what you should be pursuing. So, you have a role to speak to us, to encourage us, to hold us accountable, that we would be faithful in our marriages. And so, let's do this this morning. Let's, this is a little different than what we usually do, but let's just take a moment and pray. So, uh, if you are married this morning, pray just for a moment for those in our congregation who are not married. And for those who are not married, just take a moment and pray for those who are married. All right, can we do that together? So just take a moment now, pray where you are to the Lord, and thank, thank the Lord for those people and pray for them. So let's do that. Father, work in us, married or unmarried, we know that you are with each one of us, so we thank you for that. And Father, we come as those who say, you are right and good and true. And so wherever you have put us in life in this moment, we trust you. We trust you that we are right where you want us to be. We love those who, for whatever reason, are not married. We love them with the love of Christ. We love them because they are yours, because you have bought them with a price. Father, we love those who are married as well. And Father, as we come to this text this morning, I pray that it would be with hearts that want to hear from your word, your truth. So I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So now with that, let's stand together and read Exodus 20. We stand because we respect God's word, we reverence God's word. I'll read the first 17 verses of Exodus 20, and when I get to verse 17, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God. Hear the word of the Lord. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, may we desire your word more than silver or gold. May your word be in our mouths this morning, that which is sweeter than honey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1850, one of the first mass-produced books in the United States was written by a man named Nathaniel Hawthorne. It was his novel, The Scarlet Letter. It tells the story of a young woman, her name, Hester Prynne, who gives birth to a child of whom the father is unknown. Hester is charged with the crime of adultery. She's made to stand on a scaffold in the town center for three hours, being ridiculed and shamed, and then she is forced to wear a red letter A on her clothing for the rest of her days. She becomes an outcast without even having playmates for her child to play with. From this novel, we get a glimpse into the disgrace, the dishonor, the shame that came with the act of adultery in the past and it's interesting how Nathaniel Hawthorne draws out the hypocrisy of what goes on in that town with that woman and maybe we learn a lesson from that book of how not to deal with adultery but maybe even today we Still, we'll learn a lesson from our world on how not to deal with adultery. How much has changed with the popular opinion of today? How is adultery thought of in our culture today? To be sure, there would still be some who would see it as wrong. But the tide has been turning to see it as an act that is more and more acceptable maybe even to the point where if you would cheat on your spouse with another it's really not that big of a deal have you ever watched a movie even where it portrays this person and they're longing for love they're not finding it in their marriage along comes another actor another character and. And they move your emotions to the point where you want those people to come together. (laughs) How they would want to say, oh, adultery is a good thing. We know that it's not. Our culture would say it's no big deal. Most people are doing it. They deserve to be happy. And on and on it goes. And if we would question if our culture has really embraced adultery as a good thing, Consider the concept that many people promote even this concept of an open marriage. Husband and wife agree not to be faithful to one another in their marriage bed. It's not that they might be unfaithful. They are expected to be unfaithful to each other and still be accepted by one another when they are unfaithful. But let us tell the truth, an open marriage is no marriage at all. It's completely contrary to the definition of what marriage is. But as we come to God's word in the Bible, we see that God cares about marriages. And in these 10 words, he's devoted this word specifically to husbands and wives. He has given this word to express his care and concern. He has given this seventh word to warn and deter. He has given the seventh word because. The Israelites were prone to adultery. He's given the seventh word because people are prone to adultery. He's given the seventh word because we are prone to adultery. And that's why this word comes in the negative. It tells us what not to do because left to ourselves and given over to our sinful flesh, this is what we would want and this is what we would desire to do. And what is fascinating is that God spoke this word and he spoke it with no explanation here, right? He just says, you shall not commit adultery. Now there's other places that we can go in the law where he talks about specific sexual sins to be avoided. But it's interesting here, it's just a very simple command with no explanation as far as what adultery is. Almost as if to say, you know what it is. God does not give any loopholes. God does not give any reasons for excuses. God does not give any wiggle room, because that's what we're looking for. We're looking for the loophole. We're looking for the wiggle room. We're looking for why... It's not okay for everybody else, but maybe in this instance, it's okay for me. Maybe we would think, well, it's not technically adultery, is it? Were you unfaithful to your spouse? Did you cheat and lie? Did you break your marriage vows? And we remember that God speaks these words to the people of Israel, as Deuteronomy 4 says, out of the midst of the fire. And these words by which God speaks are the words where he establishes his covenant, his relationship with his people. And this law is to exemplify the holy God. As we come to these words over and over and over again, God is giving us these words because God wants us to know who he is. God wants us to show us himself. These are all based upon his character. And so when we look at these words, we have to and we must see God. How many can go wrong with these words because they're never able to look past the ten words to see that the words are all about If we come to these words and they're all just about us, we've missed the point. These words are about God first and foremost. And how we would miss the seventh word, the message of the seventh word, if we did not see that God upholds His word and gives this word and establishes this word word to grow and to show his love and care for his people. So why does God prohibit adultery? And where does adultery come from? We'll answer that first question in the first two points. And then the, the second question in the last point. But you can follow along in your bulletin. If that's helpful for you, outline there. Why does God prohibit adultery? Number one. Adultery attacks God's design for marriage. Adultery attacks God's design for marriage. Why did God create the entire cosmos? Why did God make everything that he has made? What's the point of it all? I mean, that's the big question, right? Why has God made everything? We would be right to quickly say he created everything for his own glory. Yes. But how is this glory displayed? What is the goal for why God created all things? There might be a few threads that we could pull on here in the unfolding of the Bible, but one of the reasons God created the entire cosmos was that He created it for a marriage. That's where it's all going. That's what it's all culminating with, a marriage. Why do you think the Bible starts with the marriage and ends with the marriage? Because that's what he's doing. It's about a marriage. And we would say God is glorified through a marriage. In order to understand what marriage is, we have to start at the very beginning. So let's just take a look here at Genesis 2. If you want to turn back there with me in your Bibles for a moment. Genesis 2. After creating the world and everything that is in it, God created the pinnacle of all creation. He created man. All that God created, he called good. But in the midst of all that he created that was good, he said something was not good. Do you remember what that was? It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. God creates everything, And God is in control, but he creates everything with a particular tension there, where he would say, I've created everything good, but there is something that's not good. It's not good for man to be alone. He needs a helper to compliment him. Now, that's compliment. That's C O M P L E M E T. Not compliment. That's like, I like your hair today, or your dress, or your shoes. That's a compliment. This is complement in the sense of complete wholeness, oneness, right? He said man by himself is not whole, is not complete. Something is missing there, and I need to complete him, I need to make him a whole person. And so what does he do? He gives him a helper who is fit. And man, how man is humbled right here at the very beginning (laughs) of Genesis. God sees and is willing to admit long before many men are willing to admit it and see it. We need somebody else. We need a helper. And so the Lord parades all of the animals through the garden before Adam. He names them, showing his authority over them. But out of all the animals, no suitable helper is found for him so the Lord caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep interesting the next time someone falls into a deep sleep it's Abraham what's happening when Abraham falls into a deep sleep God's making a covenant with him right I wonder then what's happening with Adam as he's falling asleep here could it be Covenant is happening. A relationship is being formed and made. God takes a rib from the side of Adam and closed that that rib with flesh and made it into a woman. And then look at what the Lord does. It says, He brought her to man. He is the inventor, the instigator, and the initiator of the marriage relationship. He is the divine matchmaker. Marriage is designed by God, instituted by God, and protected by God. Marriage is God's idea, not man's idea. And is it any wonder then why our world wants to destroy marriage? It wants to destroy marriage because it wants to destroy God. It wants to destroy anything and everything that would remind them of God, that would point them to God, and that would say, "The only way that this could exist is if there is a God." Do you ever think about marriage that way? Why does marriage exist? Marriage exists as a testimony and a witness to the world that there is a God." I mean, is there any way that a man and woman could live together? in peace? For one year, let alone 40, 50, or more years. That's a supernatural act right there in and of itself. Marriage says there is a God. He exists. And he has designed the marriage between a man and a woman to bring him glory. And so he brings the woman to man as a gift. What a great and gracious and perfect gift. Do you thank God for the spouse that he has given you? Do you do that regularly? Do you do that repeatedly? Do you do that continually? When you're in an argument, do you stop and say, you know what, I really should thank God for my spouse right now. He's the one, after all, who's brought you together. Jesus says, What therefore God has joined together. Do we view our marriages that way? God has brought us together. We cannot put it asunder, we cannot and should not tear it apart. And so God brings the woman to man. And then look at what the man says. This is Genesis 2 now, verse 23. Then the man said, this at last. I don't know how much time has been in the garden. How much time Adam has spent all by himself with him and just the animals. But look at those words. This at last. It's like, he's been waiting for this. At last, finally. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's like a shout of joy and exaltation and glorifying God. At last, God, you've given me what I need. And what is Adam saying here? What is he proclaiming here? Out of one has come two. Two people made in the image of God, two people equal in the eyes of God, two people who will be given different roles and responsibilities, but the man exclaims, This is the closest and most intimate of relationships between humans on earth. One man, one woman were brought together by God. Let's notice, not multiple women for the man not multiple men for the women for the woman not a man and a man not a woman and a woman any such distortions in the bible are never looked upon favorably they never go well God's design one man one woman till death does them part and see what happens here from verse 23 to 24 It's some weird kind of math. It's one man, then two people, man and a woman, back to one flesh. One, two, one. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. See the priority this relationship now takes even over parental relationships. They are to leave, they are to cleave, and they are to weave. Leave their father and mother, they're to hold fast, cleave one another to one another, and they are to weave with one another. That's a great place to start to determine if you have a healthy marriage. Marriage is a one flesh union. The two become one. And they build a shared life together around oneness. A married couple has one story, they have one purpose. They have one reputation. They have one bed. They have one suffering. They have one budget. They have one family. True, biblical, God-defined, God-designed marriage kills the statement, I'm my own person. And so what happens with adultery? You are denying the God who has brought you together. You are steeped in unbelief that God has created the marriage relationship and the marriage bed as a place where the marriage relationship flourishes. Adultery says that we know better than God. That we presume that our will is better than His revealed will. God's will says, faithfulness in marriage, that's my will, that's what I want. God created sexual intercourse for the enhancing and the union of the marriage relationship. It's good and right. And why is it good and right? Because it happens within the context that God wants it to in marriage. That's where it takes place. When you remove it from God's design, that's when problems abound. Many think of removing that from God's design, that that would be freedom. I'll be be free if I'm able to do that. If I'm able to live however I want to live, do whatever I want to do, sleep with whoever I want to sleep with, the world says that's freedom. God says that's not freedom, that's misery. This is what he uh, prohibits, the removal of intimacy from your spouse and given to another person. And the remedy is not Merely to have a spouse, to have a husband or a wife. That is not the remedy. The remedy is to love your spouse, to love your husband, to love your wife. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. If you attack God's design for marriage, you attack God. And those who remain in sexual immorality and an adulterous lifestyle will face the judgment of God. If we are to let marriage be held in honor, it begins in our marriages. It begins in how we love God. Our wife or our husband. It begins with our own devotion and commitment to one another. It begins with thankfulness to the Lord, to the one who has designed marriage, who has designed my marriage and your marriage to bring him glory. So we must not attack God's design. And maybe even something else we must not fall into the trap of the world and downplay adultery. We must uphold God's truth in the church. We must view it how God views it. Number two, adultery, adultery does not accurately reflect God's relationship with his people. Adultery does not accurately reflect God's relationship with His people. Why does God include this prohibition in these ten words? Well, remember, He is entering into a covenant with His people. God gives this word because sexual adultery is sin against God. In fact, the Bible calls it a great sin. But sexual adultery is also a snapshot, a little picture of Something that's much bigger in the Bible. Sexual adultery is a snapshot. It's a little picture of spiritual adultery. That we find all over in God's word. The people of Israel were to represent a pure, trustworthy, a faithful God who cares and tends to the hearts of his people. And what does adultery do? It desecrates what is supposed to be pure and sacred. It breaks trust. It breaks faithfulness. It breaks hearts and people. And if the people were able to be unfaithful to their spouse, what does that say about their relationships with everyone else? You cannot have that kind of unfaithfulness in what is supposed to be the closest of bonds here on earth and think that it's not going to have ramifications on the rest of the congregation, on the rest of the people. How can they trust you? Spiritual purity is one of the marks of being set apart as God's holy people. Such a breaking of the marital bond does not accurately portray who God is. The Israelites were supposed to be different than everybody else. They were supposed to be a holy people, a pure people, a clean people. All of this based on the fact that their God was the true and living God who is different than all of the pagan gods. Who is like the Lord our God? No one. But if the Israelites could not be faithful in their marriages, how did that reflect upon God? What did that say about the God who they said they worshipped? We are to be faithful in our marriages, in all our relationships. But most importantly, we are to be faithful to our God who is Always faithful, who can be nothing other than faithful and whose faithfulness never fails, it never stops, and it never diminishes. Adultery becomes the main problem of the Israelites. They forsake the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. They act in unfaithful and godless ways. They commit spiritual adultery against the Lord. In fact, listen to Jeremiah 5, verse 7. God says this to them. How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods when I fed them to the full they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. That was the problem with the Israelites. They forsook God. You know it's interesting in the book of Proverbs Solomon teaching and training his son. And what does he say to His son, drink from your own well. Your own well is pure, and it's clean, and it's good. And you know what Solomon tells his son? He says, drink your fill of it. He says, be intoxicated with it. It's so good, and it's so great. Fill yourself up with it. But he says, don't go drink water out of the streets. Because you know what's in the streets? That's where you dump your sewage. That's where you dump everything that is gross and impure and awful. And the people of Israel, the people of Israel who God had given them so much, he's brought them out of the house of Egypt. He's brought them out of the house of slavery. He's shown him himself. He's given them his love Why would they say, why would they ever say, you know what? It's just not enough. I'm just not satisfied. I'm going to go over here and drink out of the toilet. God did not want them to be sexually adulterous because he did not want them to be spiritually adulterous either. The Lord God Almighty was not enough for them. They were not content with God. They thought they needed to go elsewhere to be satisfied. They needed something more than God, something better than God. There was something out there that would make them finally happy and content Something that would give them what they really longed for. But those idols, those false gods, those material possessions of this world, wealth or whatever it was, that they tried to fill up their life with, whatever they gorged themselves on, it never satisfies. Only God can satisfy the weary and longing soul. Only God can satisfy the discontent and the restless. Only God can satisfy whatever it is that you think you're missing. Is there something in your life that you think is missing? Whatever you might think to be the problem this morning, your husband or your wife doesn't satisfy you. The things you have don't satisfy you. Your children and your grandchildren don't satisfy you. Your money doesn't satisfy you. Whatever you think the world might have to offer. Listen to what James 4.4 says. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Who does James write that to? Who does James say are the adulterous people? Those who make friendship with the world. And James, I don't think, is speaking to the world. He's speaking to people inside the church. He's saying, Church, this could be your problem. You can be an adulterous people. We also see, though, as we think about the Old Testament as a whole, as God convicts them or tells them of their sin and says, you've committed adultery against me. That is not the last word, is it? The last word is not the people of God's unfaithfulness. The last word is God's faithfulness. And that his faithfulness can overcome their unfaithfulness. And how do we see that happen? We see God send his own son into the world we see him live the perfect life we see him die upon the cross for our sins we see him buried in a tomb for three days we see him rise from the dead supernaturally miraculously we see him ascend into heaven Jesus Christ has come to win his bride. He would purchase her with his own blood. He would love her with an undying love. He would sanctify her. He would take her filth and her impurity and he would cleanse her by washing her with the water of the word. All this to present to himself a bride with splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the marriage to which all other marriages refer. This is the marriage to which our marriages are to be an accurate representation. This is the marriage between Christ and his church. This is what Ephesians 5 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And we have to understand something here. God did not design marriage and say, hmm, I really like this design, and so I'm going to base Christ's relationship to his church off of this design of marriage. It's the other way around. God designed Christ's relationship to his church, and he said, I'm going to base marriage off of that. Christ's relationship to his church is the primary relationship to which our relationship is supposed to reflect. It is the sun, we are the moon, that reflect that relationship. That's why our marriages are so important. Because our marriages aren't the sun, we just reflect the light of that marriage in our marriage. And what a beautiful picture of marriage we gain from Christ's relationship to his church. It's a relationship that gives us hope. Hope even as we come to this final point where does adultery come from? Adultery begins in a heart filled with lust. Adultery begins in a heart filled with lust. We might try to soothe our consciences by saying, I've never committed the act of adultery. I've never touched another man or a woman. But Jesus, again, transforms this word. On the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 27-30, if you want to turn there with me, you can for a moment. Matthew 5, verses 27-30. through 30. begin, begins right here in our heart. Jesus says, it's not just good enough to say, I've never actually committed the act, the physical act. Jesus says, have you looked at someone else? Have you thought about it? Have you entertained those thoughts? Then you've already committed adultery in your heart. When you look upon another with lust in your heart, when you gaze upon another in this way, you do not see them how God has created them in his image, with value and purpose. You're looking upon them as an object. You're removing their dignity, their worth that is to be valued and treasured and protected when we look on others with lust it's for our own ego Thomas Watson says this lust is the fever of the soul and its practice makes a joyful entrance but it only leaves misery behind that's what lust does it promises something good It says you're gonna be happy You're going to be joyful. You're going to feel good, but it leaves you empty and hollow with nothing inside. It doesn't live up to everything that it promises. Lust says, you can drink and be satisfied, but you never are. And our world has made it so easy today. A click here or there on the internet, just a few minutes can make someone a serial adulterer. Brothers and sisters, we must guard our hearts. We must make a covenant with our eyes like Job did. We must take the radical steps that Jesus talked about. How serious is this sin? Jesus Jesus talks about body mutilation. Is that what we should do? Tear out our eyes and cut off our hands? How many of us would be eyeless and have no hands at all? Problem is, you can have no eyes and no hands, but still have lust in your heart. <laughs> Jesus is talking to an exaggeration and hyperbole to get his point across. You may, must make drastic measures in your life. He's not calling for bodily mutilation. He is saying, though, that there must be things that you must do. If you need to get rid of your phone, get rid of your phone. I remember a story about a businessman who would travel a lot, and in the hotels that he would stay in, he would physically remove the television from his room and bring it to the front desk and say, I cannot have this in my room. I don't know if you can do that anymore. But it was a way for him to take this radical measure, saying, I can't have this, even in my hotel room. What's in our heart needs to be changed. But the Lord still would say to us, you need to flee from some of these things. You need to run away from them. Flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. Those things that we must have who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. The Lord's will for your life is your sanctification and that means abstaining from sexual immorality. But the Bible warns those who are committed to a lifestyle of sexual immorality and a lifestyle of adultery has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So let me close Real quick this morning, speaking to a few different groups of people. First, let me speak to those who adultery has been committed against you. You've been on the receiving end of that. Let me say that pain is real and difficult and hard. We don't want to minimize it. We love you. We care about you. We want to wrap our arms around you in compassion and love because we know that, as the Bible talks about, this one flesh, when it is ripped apart, it is a real ripping and it is a real tearing and it brings you to the point of you don't know how you can go on. This is one that you had committed to, you have given your life to, you loved, and they've broken your heart. Adultery is not the last word for you. Let me speak to those who are being tempted by adultery. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Other people have been tempted as well. Do not give in. Do not do it. Run. Flee. Immerse yourself in God's word. Immerse yourself in prayer. Immerse yourself with other believers who will help you. Do not. Fall into this temptation. Do not go this route. It will not give you what you're looking for. You will not be satisfied. Third, those who maybe are actively committing adultery. You need to stop. It needs to come to an end. You need to come to Christ. He will receive you. Come to him in repentance saying, I do not want this sin. I want to forsake this sin. I want to run away from this sin. Leave that sin behind. Let not that sin be the defining word in your life. Come to him and fall before him and repent of your sin. And finally those who might be haunted by adultery in their past. Hear these words spoken by David from Psalm 51. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. The one who comes to the Lord and seeking his forgiveness. He will forgive. He will not cast you out. David, King David, committed adultery and the Lord restored him. The Lord brought him back. Do not. Do not. Let adultery have the last word. The gospel of Jesus Christ must have the last word. That's where healing happens. That's where restoration happens. That's where redemption happens. That's where... Everything that's been wrong is made right. That's where sinners are made clean. That's where the unrighteous are given Christ's righteousness. That's the point of the gospel, isn't it? The gospel is we are unrighteous and we need the righteousness of another. And that comes to us through the cross of Jesus Christ where now he gives us his righteousness because on our own we have nothing that we can boast in. And so let us go back again to the gospel. Let us go back again and say, Christ is the one who has taken us, who were at one time adulterous and filthy sinners, and he's brought us back to himself. He's washed us, he's made us clean. We are his. And what a marriage, what a marriage with Christ, a marriage that will never be undone. Father, thank you for your word this morning. I pray that our hearts would have heard from you and that we would have heard the truth. Father, I pray for any who might be caught in sin today. I pray that you would work in their hearts to release them, open their eyes, and run to the cross, and there find forgiveness and wholeness, there find a husband that they have been looking for, a husband who is perfect, a husband who satisfies in everything.